What's new? What's new? Welcome back to another music interview. I'm Justin the Florida God. This is the So Who's Up Next podcast, the show by music for music, talking with artists and people in the music space about ideas that inspire. Alex Sue is up next. If there's anything I've learned in just about a year of making the show now, it's that often the most successful creatives are ones that are in multiple different creative spaces. Alex Sue fits snugly into the label of the hybrid creative. Besides music, he's also an actor, something that we actually dive into a little bit in the episode. We also shared ideas about proper representation in entertainment and gave some thought on what it might take for an artist to extend their shelf life once they found some of their spotlight. This is such a great talk. I've been circling some representation-based drama in my Twitter feed about the lo-fi community, which is a whole separate issue, but after listening to Alex, I've definitely got some new talking points that I could use as conversational ammunition for peace and understanding, obviously. Let's just get into it. Hope you enjoy. Alex Sue, nice to have you on the show. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How how you been? I'm doing pretty well. I'm, you know, working remote right now. My house is going through renovations, so you might hear like echoes because it's kind of bare, but I'm doing good. You're chilling. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, so I was born in Philly, a little bit west of Philly, and I moved to New Jersey when I was three years old. So I definitely identify more as a New Jerseyan, um, but I've been living in South Jersey for like 20 years, and I went to school in Newark, New Jersey. So pretty much New Jersey all around. Nice. And did that influence your music making at all? I know, you know, at least growing up, you were surrounded a bit by music, but what was that like for you there in New Jersey? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I don't know if the location really changed or like impacted me, but uh, my mom was the first person to like, we, we used to do singing videos with like this big ass camera, like VCR kind of thing. And I used to sing a lot. And so she got me like voice lessons and like piano lessons. But the funny thing is I got so tired of like going to lessons every week because I was so young doing it. So I stopped at seven years old. Like I went from three years old to seven and I had lessons. And then I was like, mom, I don't want to do it anymore. And I totally regret that because I'm really bad at piano now and like <laughs> I would love to have continued voice lessons but you know I mean at least it gave me an avenue to like sort of express myself and and start from there you know for sure and we'll get to the songwriting stuff in a second because I know you've been doing that for a little bit as well yeah. but I think also what you just said as far as the voice and developing your voice at some point you toured with a choir is that right Yes, I did. Um, so backstory on that. I mean, I <laughs> when, when I was in seventh grade, I joined choir because I was like, I do like to sing. I had no other like clubs going on besides like football, which I wasn't that great at. So I did choir and I was an alto, which is like a girl range, like a female range mostly. And then the next year I came into school and my voice dropped and I went to a bass. So I just like, it was a lot to do, but I did choir all throughout uh, my high school career and my teacher who I really love, like, she's amazing. She's so supportive. She was like, you're a great representation of our school. Like you would, you, you sound great. You're always getting into all South Jersey choir, which is like a 
I guess, elite choir, I guess. And so she told me to audition for this all-American, I think it's called American Music Abroad program, which is AMA. Students from all the East Coast, they can audition to be in this choir to travel to Europe for three weeks to sing. And at first I was like, I don't know if I can do it or like have the money to do it. But my mom was like, no, do it. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. So I auditioned and I got in with like 18 other members, singers, and we went to Europe in 2015, I think, 2014 or 2015. And no, it was 2014. I was in my junior year. So we went to six different countries within the span of three weeks, France, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, Czech Republic, and Austria. And it was absolutely breathtaking, stunning. Uh, we did a lot of different like tourism stuff, but then also performed in concert venues and, and churches. And it was just like insane. Yeah. Uh, the churches there look so different than anything that I've ever seen. Almost like every single one was much more detailed and much more rustic and old. And I don't know, it was the time of my life there. And like, I didn't know I wanted to ever pour like that. I never thought about it, I guess. I've always loved performing and, and singing. But the minute I went into Europe for three weeks, I was like, I want to do this forever. Like, mm. I don't know if I would want to be in a choir for all my life, but I would love to tour around every country and and, and experience things and, and just do what I love. So that kind of sparked that for me, for sure. I like that. And international and domestic, you both found um, some levels of success early on before, I guess, you really started developing more of the musical sound. And we'll get into that. But I'm also very curious about your time in jazz so at some point or another you also won a berkeley jazz festival which is crazy so talk to me a little bit about your jazz roots and and where that's taken yeah. so far you know what now that you're saying this i guess location definitely had an impact because maybe not new jersey or whatever the case is but in my school we had this jazz teacher named carl cox and he's actually like a grammy winning jazz artist he's toured with uh the roots and stuff like that so he's he's pretty well known in the jazz community and i didn't even know how good and how big he was until i started getting older and in fourth grade i started playing saxophone we would do summer band and we would do like concerts and he would show up and, and watch and sort of scout around and see what's, you know, what's there. And he told me early on, he was like, you have potential. And I was like, okay, like, that's really cool. And he was like, you have to practice a lot though. I realize now that I probably didn't like jazz that much because I didn't practice enough, you know, but I had that potential that kind of took me further. So once I got into high school, I was, I had to audition to be one of two seats in the alto sax, which is like so many people play the alto sax in our school. So I didn't get it. Instead, I was asked to play tenor saxophone, which is the same thing, just a little bigger. So there's a little bit of getting used to it, but it's still roughly the same. Mm -hmm. So I did that and I was in jazz band for like three of my uh, three out of the four years. We went to Boston every single year because we were, you know, we did really well at states and stuff like that. So we always qualified to go to Berkeley. And the first year that I got in, we won. And it was actually wow. insane because like I was so, so young and like I had like bangs, I think. I, it was a really rough time, like visually, I think for me, <laughs> but I had like glasses and it was just very like awkward looking, but we won and we got to perform for like thousands of people because 
uh, the tradition is if you win first place, you also have like a televised or like a recording of it. So you get to perform for everyone else who competed. And that's when I was like, okay, this is a pretty big deal. Like, this is really fun. And then we went there every year since then. And we won again, I think my senior year. Yeah. It, like that, that experience is also crazy. And I feel like without Carl Cox, my jazz uh, teacher, I, it wouldn't have happened. And also like, I definitely plateaued in my jazz career because I didn't practice enough because I was focusing on acting and, and music. I definitely fell off in terms of like my skills, but Carl Cox always believed in me. So like, you know, I was always in the jazz band and I had, you know, the utmost respect for him and also like just a great experience overall in music. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause also I, I won marching band nationals as well. Junior year, so my other uh, my other teacher, he was also just amazing as well. So I would have to say, like, location matters in that way because my hometown had three amazing teachers who brought me up basically and and gave me confidence. Honestly, that's pretty crazy. And yeah, I definitely agree. I think location has at least something to do with who you have access to, aside from other resources and things like that. Um, At the same time, I don't think you should discount any of your own individual efforts, you know, um, from what I can tell hard work, you know, keeping like a a good work ethic and staying productive and being in multiple creative spaces, like that takes a lot of effort. And I don't think that's something that you should discount at any point in time. At this time, when you were still super young, doing all these creative musical things, at what point did the acting come in? Was it something that was always there or something that was a more recent development? I would say singing and playing musical instruments were definitely first. I always hesitated in joining a lot of these things because I was like, I don't want to be just in all these musical things. I want to branch out. But that's also to say, like when my middle school musical came out, I was like, I'm not going to audition for this. Like there's singing, but there's like, you know, there's costumes and makeup and and it felt just not anything that I would want to do. But a lot of my friends were actually in it because we were all in choir and stuff like that. So I went to see my seventh grade middle school play. It's the Oz. So the, the black version of Wizard of Oz. Right. And my friend who played the lead in it, she played Dorothy. She killed that performance. And when I watched it, it made it like that light up a spark as well. I was like, I did I not want to be a part of this. This is amazing. So ever since then, I would audition. And luckily, maybe it's because of the lack of guys who would ever try out. I just kept getting parts, whether it's main characters, whether it's uh, the second main lead, stuff like that. And so I always gotten a part. I was able to learn and to develop my craft and acting at least on stage as I'm doing that I'm like I love this but also musical acting is so different from like film and tv so if you didn't know like musical acting is so expressive it's so big and large and grand and you're like 100 feet away from the next person that's watching you so you have to sort of make really grand gestures Mm -hmm. and film and tv it's the opposite it's very subtle minute it's all of the things that you would do in real life that people can't see from 100 feet away. So you never do that in musical theater. Mm -hmm. Once I started to tap into that, because I had an acting teacher in school because he also did fall plays, which is no singing. So I started to develop more of affinity to like subtle acting and just like being more realistic, I guess. That was when I like really, really 
loved it a lot and I wanted to continue pursuing that forever. So thankfully, I when I went to college in Newark in New Jersey, which is very close to the city in New York, I was like, you know what? Let me try to audition for things that are not in my comfort zone at all, which is like actual productions, short films that college directors are you know, making. And I remember one of my first auditions, I went for this Korean American role and I like went to audition. I was uh, up against 20 other Korean Americans. I'm Chinese American. So I'm not even like, I was like, there's no way I'm getting this part, but I somehow did. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn Korean and it was like a whole different experience. And I feel like that really started my sort of confidence in that as well. So I just like, I kept auditioning and luckily I have been able to do enough stuff to get noticed. Um, and I'm assigned to a management. So I'm actively auditioning now for like really big projects and stuff like that. So it's just like, it's been really great. And I'm lucky to have found these opportunities as well. I feel like there's, there's luck that plays into it uh, for sure as well. Do you think there's a danger in being a Chinese American, being able to play a Korean American? I think if we asked this question 10 years ago, no. I think now with more conversations about presentation, diversity and stuff like that, I believe in acting in a way that people can do whatever and play whatever character they want. However, that's also not to say that there's other things that needs to be represented. So let's take, for example, queer actors or queer characters. There's not many queer characters in the history of cinema at all. But I would never oppose a straight, uh, straight identifying person to play a queer character as long as there's enough queer actors that are getting represented and there's enough jobs for them. And right now we are still not at that point. Right. So I guess now I would... At this current moment, I would be like, you can't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't take on a role that you, you know, that is strictly just not being offered to anybody else. Right. Mm -hmm. um, for Korean Americans and Chinese Americans, I think it, it still stands the same way. However, like, I mean, the, the identity of being Korean American isn't too focused in the plot. It was actually more, it was about a queer story, mm -hmm. a queer family story. So the fact that like I am queer, so I, I can actually still play that. I was okay with doing that, but I can totally see if someone did have a problem with it. If Korean actors weren't being casted as much as Chinese American actors, whatever the reason is, I would totally be open to hear that. But I think there's a lot of nuance in like the way people um, approach this stuff in terms of representation and problematic casting and stuff like that. And I think it really like we, we should ha all have good intentions in doing this. My intentions were to bring more Asian American stories to light. Uh, that's why I auditioned for it. Mm -hmm. But if it was a very Korean story, then I probably wouldn't because I, one, I couldn't even be able to learn that much Korean anyway. Yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying that I don't think it was much of a danger, but it could totally be one, if, especially if it's a big project and it's seen by a lot of people and it's just like there's a lot of Korean aspects to it that I'm just not a part of. Yeah, it's just because I, I remember seeing this tweet a little while ago about like, I think the phrase was like Asian interchangeability or something like that. And it was more yes. in relation to um, people getting names wrong at work, right? I'm mixed race, Asian, Filipino, Chinese, and white, right? So I'm a little ambiguous when it comes to the wow, facial cool. recognition. So it's like, I, I don't know if I would be able to be like interchangeable per se with other like 
just Chinese Americans or just Filipinos. You know what I mean? So uh, that's that's kind of why I brought it up. I was just curious about your take. But I completely agree. I think there's two answers to that myself, like the woke answer, which is the one you gave. And then there's also just the if the actor is good enough, cast the actor. But at the same time, it's like, I would no, I totally agree. Yeah, it's like I, at the same time though, I would never think uh, like if oh, <laughs> if like a director was trying to cast an Asian role and like like you'd never cast a white guy to be an Asian, right? Ideally, you know, because you, you want to at least somewhat look the part, and so that's where the idea of interchangeability came from. That's that's why I asked that. So talk to me a little bit about your album, <clears throat> Me and Yuke. What was the process like making uh, a ukulele album? When I was a freshman in college, I, well, I never picked up a, a guitar because I, my hand's pretty small. So whenever I play guitar, it would always hurt. I, I just never had fun doing it. Hmm. So I kind of gave up on like string instruments or like any guitar type instruments. But when I went to college, my roommate, who's now my best friend, um, he like showed me a ukulele and I was like, um, I don't know if I can play that. Like I'm usually bad at this type of instrument, but once I held it, it was just like, it felt very perfect to me. Like it felt very small and like nice for me to, to play around with. And there's only four strings and everything like that. So I was, I started to pick up on it and I learned really quickly. I would say like within those two weeks, I started playing chords and then I started writing new stuff based on the ukulele. Cause before that I would just make up melodies on my own write it down on a piece of paper and stuff it away in my box and i was like that's just my creation for the day right. um now with a ukulele i'm able to like really conjure up songs that have really you know actual have actually have foundation and base um for me to like work on and to change things up because i can change you know chords in the chorus or something like that to enhance myself so that whole year i would say was just like an experimental time and I already had so many songs written, whether before I learned ukulele or during ukulele. I, that summer, that same year, I was like, I just want to put something out at this point. Because I never, at that point, never really released anything on my own. And it's my stuff. But I've been writing since I was 14. So it's already been years of me just writing all the time. And I was like, you know what? Let me just create a story, produce it myself and not wait any longer because I have so many fears of like, you know, not being able to produce it because I, I can't produce. I still can't at this current moment. I'm not the best producer technically, but I can play an instrument now. So basically the, the beginning of that album was me telling a story, um, but also doing every single thing on my own. So I use GarageBand. I play the ukulele. I would sing. I would mix mix master <laughs> and then i would like make the album artwork and i would i did everything mm -hmm. um so that album is like purely just me and myself which is like looking back on it it's kind of crazy it was very ambitious of me to do that within like one or two months and put it out and it's not perfect by any means like i do not listen to it nowadays because it's just awkward to hear but it was definitely like needed for me because like if i didn't do that i don't know if i would ever have had the confidence to just keep going, you know? In 2017, when I did release the album, we still use iTunes a little bit. So I did have orders coming in and I did get like revenue from that. Um, probably the most of any other song that I've, or any other project I've ever done mm -hmm. because of the time period. And it just like kind of helped me grow a lot more and to write even better, you know? So that whole album is, it's really f actually pretty good story of like, me 
growing up, basically, from 18 years old, a naive 18-year-old in the first track to sort of a very confused 19 year old because everything has shattered like all my beliefs of adulting and all my beliefs of the world outside of high school was just completely different and as well as me coming to terms with my sexuality as well so it was just like a, a really really personal introspective um I'm really proud of like what I did with it. I just won't listen to it again because not again, but like I won't listen to it now because I just, it's so different now, but that's still my roots. Like I, I still write that way uh, using my ukulele. So it's still like, it's still a part of me. That album is definitely still a part of me. A lot to respond to there. So I'll just start kind of at the top with, I definitely relate to the idea that you have to prove to yourself that you can make music to help with that confidence because I remember that's an idea that I'm sure a lot of people, myself included, can definitely relate to. Um, I remember it was after I dropped my first EP, it was only three songs that I finally said to myself like, hey, maybe this is a good thing. Maybe I could keep going with this. And here we are years down the road, a bunch of songs in the bank, you know, released and stuff like that. So kind of a similar pattern to kind of how your story developed at the same time. You've definitely had way more success than I have, which is definitely, um, you know, goes to show, I think, a few things. You, you said that you were operating in more of a, at the time of the release for me and Uke, the album, you dropped it on iTunes, you charted in the singer-songwriter category all the way up to the 79th spot. That doesn't happen um, on accident. If it did, you can tell me, but what were you doing promotion-wise? I don't... I- Honestly, it might have been an accident. Sorry, <laughs> I, it might have been an accident. I'll do. I also think that in 2017, iTunes wasn't. It's. It, I mean, it's dead now still, mm-hmm. um, but it was also dying then. And the fact that I labeled as singer songwriter, mm-hmm. I think that helped with like, because I, I did have friends and family, and I promoted on my social media. Um, so I think what happened was is that. there was a bulk of pre-orders and stuff like that. And people did start listening to it. Cause I also, that same, around the same time I performed for the Rutgers got talent and got third place with my own songs from the album. So I think I, that played a part in it, but, um, the fact that the genre was singer songwriter, which not a lot of things are at least that week, right. Combined with like just the sort of publicity that I had with the campus and then my friends and family, I was able to chart briefly for that spot. And then I don't think I ever saw it chart ever again, but I was so confused because I was like, that's crazy, you know, but I think I checked in the overall range and I was nowhere. I don't think I was in that. So it's definitely like, just a singer songwriter genre, which I'm still proud of because that is who I, what I identify with. For sure. And I feel like, yeah, like being able to label your music accurately is something that's super, super important then. And especially now, I think, cause I've had issues with trying to label my own music and then also pitching it to playlists and stuff. It could just be bad, right? That could be a very real possibility, but at the same time, it's definitely hey. attaching a label to it. So people can immediately identify or better identify with what they're about to listen to, um, is definitely a strategic move. So, um, that's that's super cool. I'm glad you found success in that pursuit. I also think that labels and genres are so in the past, even though, I mean, it's not because we still have labels on these music uh, types of music, but I think that it should be dead. I think that we're blending so much influences and everything's digital almost to a lot of things are digital. So it's just really, I, I think that 
genres are so like, it puts you in a box. And I feel like I am someone who likes to fuse different genres together, um, tied it tied with my own songwriting and then just like put it out there. And I feel like I wish that playlists, playlisters don't like just look at genres and be like, eh, like there's too many submissions here already for that. I just feel like it, the label, I think puts a, a damper on things sometimes because just because you might label something alternative or pop and there's a lot of genres or a lot of music out there that is labeled that way. Mm-hmm hard for people to see it but then like what if it's something that's really innovative that's really cool you know it, it might be buried because it's labeled alternative or pop um so yeah like I, I i wish labels weren't that much of a thing in music anymore because it's honestly not right like have you heard the uh the new olivia rodrigo what, what's your take on that in the scope of like genre and things like that because i listened to it i i didn't hear anything new um uh like the one you know, kind of punk song was a bit different, but the rest of it, for the most part, sounded the same. Um, I know I'm kind of like throwing all my opinions out there, but what's what's your take on it? Like, did you feel the same way or did you think it was um, something beyond pop and shouldn't be labeled as pop? Or do you think it was appropriate? So what's the official label? Is, is it pop, pop punk or pop? It's pop, pop. So, okay. So my thing is, I mean, she, I, I, her label and they genre that music correctly. It's pop, right? Um, people are hearing pop punk influences, which I also do hear, and pop rock influences for sure. Yeah, I, I see that. But we, I would never be like, well, Olivia's a fraud because it's not pop punk because she labeled the album pop. So it's up to the people to be like what they think of the album. But for her, she already labeled as pop. So I would never be like Olivia's, you know, trying to feel, seem different, but she's not really different when she really already says she's the same. Like she's a pop artist. Mm -hmm. On a side note, I really think that her album's great in in terms of a a debut album from someone who writes her music. Um, She's very young and she's, an Asian American. Like I know she's half, but she's completely Asian in my book. Right. And she is lighting the way for people of any type to become a pop star. She's sort of like a pop diva almost already. Like she's having so much success. She's a, she's a Disney star, which if you think about all the Disney stars that are big or Nickelodeon stars that are big, they're all white Mm -hmm. or like very white passing Latina, you know? So she is, blazing a path for future pop stars of any type of people that you want to you want to have up there and she is having really great success what's crazy is like her her biggest influence is, is also my biggest influence and i think that there's a really weird asian american uh come up with like artists like conan gray olivia rodrigo and i guess i'll lock myself up in there but we're all fans of taylor swift like religiously and i think that songwriting is so huge sometimes because right now we're in an age where every single sound and and thing you hear has been processed on like online on on, digitally you know everything is not real or whatever so anything can sound alike anything can sound and anything can be done but the only thing that can't be is how you approach tone of it and how the lyrics hit and how uh how you deliver your words because people who write music i think people who write their own lyrics the way they express it is different than someone who was handed like a lyric sheet of like a song right i mean that's not to say that you can't have emotion when you write lyrics but i think that it's definitely special when you do write your own lyrics and you have a story that's going through your career like you can follow someone's career actively and and figure out where they're 
they're at in their in their life right now. And that's really a long way to say that like I am impressed with Olivia Rodrigo's marketing. I'm impressed with how she's treating her fans. I'm impressed with the way she's on social media and how her songwriting. It's actually brilliant. I think that she's only going to get hate because I already see it, but she's definitely doing something right, I think. But it is pop. The album is pop. <laughs> oh, yeah, for, for sure. Um, I wouldn't say that it's like upbeat pop by any means. It's definitely got that kind of mellow singer songwritery kind of roots. And that's funny. I'm glad you mentioned Taylor Swift because that was literally my next question. I was going to ask about um, how much taylor swift has influenced your own music i know at least for how she got her start very singer songwritery slash country as well not too dissimilar from olivia rodrigo's um kind of yeah. mellow come up i guess for lack of a better word there but how big of an influence where like when did you fall in love with taylor swift and how has she influenced your creative decisions I think I fell in love with her music when before 1989 came out, I, my cousin sent us, so we were going on a trip to Poconos, which is like two hours away. It's a, it's a nice, you know, mountain range. And so on the way there, we played a CD that my cousin made for us to like for the road trip and everything. And in it was uh tell us red album. And the one thing that caught me first was the color because I, I love red, but that wasn't like the reason. But once I started listening to it, I heard such a really like raw, raw storytelling from her mm-hmm. um, that I didn't see in pop realm that she's in. Like she she's in country and then she had singles that over to pop and I never really was that into it because I'm like this is just it's just music that's really catchy right Mm -hmm. Um, but it seems that you know her deep cuts her fans know all the lyrics to all the deep cuts because it's so good Mm -hmm. and it's so um, cohesive with everything and she's very honest with her storytelling so that's when I started liking her but that's probably 2013 1989 is not my favorite album of hers but obviously her success there influenced me again because I was like okay she is probably one of the only artists who was strictly country, made country popular for teenage girls, then switched over to pop, and then was even more successful after that. So I started to follow her career as a business standpoint, and I started to appreciate even more because I think that she's so good at knowing what to do next and knowing what direction she should go in and listening to her own instincts and dabbling into new things. And like I said earlier in this podcast, I was saying how like spontaneous I am and how I like to tackle new things. She's probably one of the only ones who succeed in every single like genre she does. And it sounds mostly genuine, you know, like there might be an album here or there that the majority of people will be like, that's not genuine. Some, some people say, think that reputation is not genuine, which is, you know, people's opinions. And it's really a really big risk when you tackle different genres. I mean, she went from really strictly country then to like country rock a little bit. Mm. And then it went to like pop and then a little bit of trap pop with reputation. And now to like alternative indie folk sort of realm. I think that that's a very brave thing to do. And I, I am influenced by her songwriting, but also her business side. So I think it kind of 
you know, I, I don't want to mimic her career, but I would love to have the same freedoms and I would love to have, you know, people who appreciate every single lyric that I've ever written. Cause I take a lot of time into it. And I really love the, that aspect too. And I just want to connect with people in that, in that way. So I kind of follow her in every aspect. I want to be very similar to how her career is, you know? And I think that's what the influence comes from. I think she encourages raw storytelling. So I, although my lyrics might not be exactly the same as hers at all, I don't want to be, but she lets me like feel confident about my own raw story- storytelling. So for sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I definitely appreciate that sentiment. I feel like authenticity when you're doing anything and especially in a creative endeavor like music, it's super important to wear your heart on your sleeve. Of course, you can mask it through your lyrics or just the way you phrase things, um, things like that. So yeah, definitely a, a sentiment I can relate to, um, especially when like you're you're paying attention to like pop singer songwriter stuff, you know, because um, it's like the staples of it, just being like so overwhelmingly honest and to really show that through music um, allows for greater and deeper connections, I feel as well. Something that I definitely remember about Taylor Swift's um, career was just the issue around, uh, I think it was like having rights to her music or something. Didn't she just drop a remaster? Um, It was Folklore and then it was like Evermore after that, right? Those two are her new albums. Those are like the folk albums that she's a folk slash alternative albums that she dropped. Gotcha. Uh, one of the, and then the one that she remastered is called Fearless, which is that it has love story. You belong mm-hmm. with me, like that stuff. Yeah, she had a huge like stepped up to say something about Scooter Braun mm-hmm. um, and sort of the nature of the music industry. And it's true, a lot of young artists who get signed, they don't know that they sign all their masters away. They don't own their music. Yeah. So she is taking a stand in that. And a lot of people who are musicians are definitely in support. And a lot of people who aren't seem to not be in support of it. And they think it's a cash grab. So it's very interesting to hear both sides. I think it could be both. I, could, I think that it could be her making even more money off of her old stuff. Or it, and, and it could also be alongside that she wants to make sure she owns these albums because the original deal is with her. First of all, her record label, Big Machine uh, Records, they weren't even a thing until Taylor Swift blew up. Like her and the, the president of Big Machine, they worked together to make to make this label kind of big because of her, you know. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they're doing that to her now, like the, the deal was is that she has to make a new album every to own every old album. So that's six six album cycles in order for her to own everything. Yeah. So that was probably at least 12 years. So, so she's like, she was done with that and she did all of this work to sort of uh, make, you know, make sure that she owns her stuff. And again, she's breaking records with like, it's the number one uh, album it's not even the original you know she it's a remastered album and she's and she has so many sales on that still so it's it's incredible i think that obviously her star will fade one point you know it's i mean every single musician will fade at one point but i think that she's already stamped her legacy and she's gonna be here for a while and inspiring other artists to sort of own their own craft be as honest as possible like she 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 stands for a lot of things for me personally mm-hmm. and i'm sure that's the same for like olivia rodrigo and like conan gray who are infinitely much bigger but yeah wait you said infinitely much bigger 
Yeah, like they're huge artists right now. I mean, Conan Gray might be a little like lesser, but like those two are experiencing really good success and are using very similar mantras and uh, they're inspired by Taylor Swift just like me. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, Let, let's just speculate a little bit. What do you think makes for an artist's shelf life to be longer than others? Because I, the reason why I kind of jumped whenever you said bigger than Taylor Swift was because they're big right now, right? But I mean, and I've been following yeah. Conan Gray's stuff for, I don't know, the past few years, right? So we'll give him credit for that. But do you think there's anything, I don't know, 10 years out? Because I know for a fact, Taylor Swift's probably going to still be killing it. You know what I mean? Like, because she's been around this long. There's no reason. I meant, <laughs> no, I meant, I meant they're big, like infinitely bigger than me at the moment. Because oh, oh, okay. we're all inspired by Taylor Swift. Yeah, I yeah. Got you, no, I, got I don't you. think Olivia or Conan are bigger than Taylor Swift. Um, but good question, because I will say, I think that Olivia could totally be here for a while. And so can Conan, because I think that the, those two can music a lot. Like, I think 21 Pilots is one of them who also is very, like, specific with their music. Um, it's, to me, I think the element of making sure that you're relevant, at least in this generation, is how much you are a part of the song-making process. So back then, we had, like, Madonna and Michael Jackson, and I don't know if those two write the music specifically. I think Michael Jackson does, um, but I don't know if Madonna does. I don't know if Mariah Carey does. I th maybe she does. But, like, people who stand longer back then, that applies much nowadays, because right now we're so sporadic. Um, big artists come and go. Uh, it's hard to hold a legacy for more than 10 years. Um, but I think that in this current times, like time period, to sort of stay longer is to make sure that you write your stuff and you're you're in the process of making it. You're, you're not just being handed the, the material from producers. producers. Um, because people will follow you because anyone can make a hit. Anyone can make a big song, really nice, you know, really awesome, catchy sounding song. It's the fact that you are able to create a connection with your fans in which they feel like they understand you a little bit is when I feel like you can actually sustain yourself because at the moment, what's the most important. So for someone like Taylor Swift, she's around for now 17, 16, 17 years, mm. which is crazy, but she's still here. And there's people who have debuted later who are not making successful albums now who, or those who came in later already completely flopped. It's just, it's crazy to see that. But I think a big component of that is how involved you are in your craft and your albums and i think making good albums also because singles yeah. will be well it will get tiring you know like if you're making like for me katie perry had one of the biggest eras in teen history mm. but because she was always a singles person and, and her albums aren't always full of raw material from her mm. it's hard to really like follow the next album uh it's just hard and, and she's not really succeeding in releasing songs unfortunately you know that's a that's a really cool take and i i, I definitely agree with the idea that you need to establish a connection with people that's real um in order to sustain yourself long term um as to how to do that exactly i'm not even going to try to get into but it's different for everyone. I think everyone's got an audience waiting for them, though, somewhere out there. It's only a matter of how to find them and when to find or when you can find them and things like that. 
Before we get into Alex Sue's advice for emerging artists, just wanted to let you know that you can connect with him on socials and or listen to his music through the links in the description, either here, like wherever you're listening to, Spotify and or YouTube, it'll be in the description for both. Follow the show wherever you go to stay updated on all things music. Be sure to stay tuned because I have so much in the works that uh, your boy's been a little slacking on trying to release, but I'm getting better with it. So have no fear. Lots of content coming your way. Now for some advice. What advice do you have for emerging artists trying to up their game and take their sound to the next level? I would say be bold and follow your path, right? So just do the things that you feel are instinctively right for you at the moment. You know, don't don't go chasing anything. Um, don't go mimicking other people's success. Do what's right for you. And I think that there's going to be a fan base and a group of audience that will appreciate that, whether big or small. We don't know whether or not our niche will be reaching a billion people, but as long as you're being authentic to yourself, it will show somehow and some people will appreciate it. And that's all that matters. Just stay true to yourself at all times.